0: So this morning, I'm going to share with you a message that I've titled, A Glimpse of His Glory. A Glimpse of His Glory. And we'll be starting out in Luke chapter 9, verse 28, as we begin here in a few moments. So if you have a Bible with you, or you've got an electronic device, you can swipe or tap or flip or whatever that looks like for you. Find your way to Luke chapter 9, around verse 28. And we'll pick up there here in just a few moments, but things... Are not as they seem. Some of you woke up this morning to a clock that said that it was seven o'clock, and yet things were not as they seem. Because what time was it? In fact, it was eight o'clock. That's right. Surely, daylight savings time has thrown us all for a loop. The clock in my bedroom said that it was three thirty when I rose to continue my preparations to preach. This morning, but things were not as they seemed. Some of you look here this morning like you've adjusted pretty well to the time change. But if we were to have a conversation with your spouse or with your children or with the people that you ran over on the way to church today, they would give a testimony that would say that maybe something else could be going on. None of us enjoys losing an hour of sleep and every fall i celebrate what a blessing daylight savings time is but every spring i lament its curses and many of you do as well and at various intervals throughout the evening yesterday my wife amy reminded me and she reminded our kids that this curse was imminent, that the clock was not as it appeared. And she would give us the time as it would be the next day as a reminder that we needed to be keeping attention on what time we were going to bed and what time we were allowing for our preparations for today. And no, things are not always as they seem. So far, this year has been a year filled with rain. And occasionally, we hear individuals speaking about how they wish that the sun would just start shining. Again, because it certainly appears from down here as though the sun is not shining. But the reality is that the sun is indeed still shining. The clouds are simply obstructing our view. I can remember on a few occasions when I have flown on a jet on a rainy day and have been in this gloomy area below and have not seen the sun shining only to ascend in that jet Through the clouds, usually there's a bit of turbulence that you bounce through. And then all of a sudden you emerge above the clouds to see that the sun has been there. It has been shining brilliantly all along. It has only been obstructed by those clouds which have been there in the way. The clouds have cloaked the brilliance of the sun. And you don't see that until the jet ascends above those clouds. The sun was always shining. It didn't just appear all of a sudden to be shining. From our vantage point, though, we couldn't see because the clouds veiled its appearance. Well, in today's passage, we see a similar sort of unveiling taking place. It's an event known as the transfiguration. In this event, Jesus' humanity is peeled back, and we behold for just a brief moment his un. Veiled glory. And oh, how we come to find when it comes to the second person of the divine trinity who took on flesh that things are not as they may have seemed. He is so much more gloriously brilliant than we might have imagined him to be. So join me now in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, as we see what happened when the veil of Jesus' humanity was lifted for just a brief moment. If you're able, I'd ask that you would stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28, Some eight days after these sayings, he, that is Jesus, took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Here ends the reading of God's Holy word, you may be seated. Much of Luke's gospel from this point here in Luke chapter 9 through Luke chapter 19 deals with Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. We saw a little bit of that last week as we saw Jesus commanding his disciples that whoever wishes to come after me, and we talked about how coming after Jesus meant ultimately going to the place where he was going, whoever would follow him to that heavenly abode, the presence of the Father where he was going, that place where he's going to prepare a place for those who have entrusted their lives to him, whoever would come after him must take up his cross and die daily and follow him, losing his life so that he might gain that which he could not gain. On his own, because Jesus has gained that very thing, and Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure. He's preparing them to come after him. And surely the event that we see here in this passage today would be the best sort of preparation that Jesus could give to his disciples. For in this event, the disciples catch a glimpse of who Jesus truly is. That's what Jesus had promised back in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, by the way, the verse right before our passage here today. In that verse, he said to his disciples, and we read this last week, but we didn't dig into it because it's a little more important for the passage that we have here today, but he said to his disciples, but I say to you truthfully that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And if you've read through the, the gospel accounts, maybe you've come to this verse, and, and I know, for example, I had a... A friend that I had worked with in my first job out of college had a chance just to catch up with him a few years later. And he had had a real struggle with this verse. And he and I had a a good opportunity just to sit down and talk through what this means. Because there are some scholars of a liberal bent who would try to explain away much of the scriptures, and they would say that this very scripture, that Jesus talking about his disciples, seeing him coming again in his kingdom before they tasted death, was something that was not fulfilled, that Jesus had given a false prophecy, that Jesus had given something that was not lived out. But what's so evident here in this scripture is that the very fulfillment of what Jesus talks about here happens in the passage that is before you here today. This was a taste of the heavenly kingdom. This was a glimpse of glory. It occurred on earth where Jesus will one day reign. My friends, Jesus is coming again to reign here. He really is. In this vision, Jesus was glorified and he will be glorified when he comes to reign. You can bet on it, my friends. And in this moment, they're a present with Jesus One individual who has died and has apparently been raised to life, that individual is Moses. We read in the book of Deuteronomy, near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, there's an explanation of Moses's death. And when Moses died, the individuals did not know where he was buried because God took him and buried him in a place that he did not reveal to anyone else. And yet Moses did die, there's a clear explanation of that in Deuteronomy, and yet Moses is here, standing with Jesus on this mountain, so Moses must have been raised to life. Likewise, there was one who had not died, who had been translated directly into heaven. That was Elijah. Some of you know about Elijah, this great prophet of the Old Testament, who ultimately, at the end of his days, passes the mantle of his ministry onto Elisha, one of his key disciples. He's the head of this discipleship sort of school of prophets. And, and as he's leading these prophets, eventually God reveals to him that he's going to take him. And so he begins to prepare others and he goes and a chariot comes down and takes him directly into heaven. He's translated into heaven without even dying. And my friends, every saint will fall into one of these two categories. Either you'll be resurrected from the dead or you'll be translated directly into his presence. As Christ comes again for his own. And every one of us who is in Christ by faith will then find that he is glorious forevermore. This is a foretaste of the kingdom, my friends. This is Jesus revealing to his disciples a glimpse of what is to come. And Jesus is glorious. But that's not the impression that many in our world have of him. When it comes to Jesus, some things are not as they seem. Some individuals would portray Jesus as this puny teacher of good moral teachings. And our world beholds him as one among many ways to get to God. So many by their lives reflect that they see Jesus just as a peddler of optional teachings which may have some benefits. But my friends, things are not as they seem when it comes to this one. So let me give you five ways that Jesus is more than what meets the eye here in this passage. The first is this. Jesus may look like just another man, but he is glorious God. This passage begins with four characters in play, but soon another two will appear. But at the outset here, we've got James and Peter and John. And then there's Jesus, of course. But James, Peter, and John, Bible scholars refer to these as Jesus's inner circle of disciples. These are the men that Jesus was ultimately closest to in his time here on earth. They had accompanied Jesus into the room of Jairus's daughter when he raised that daughter back to life. In the last chapter of Luke that we covered a few weeks back. They had been there as as he told this young daughter to arise. And it's also these same disciples who would later accompany Jesus as he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where in this deep agony, deep anguish over the work which he was about to complete, he sweat drops of blood. These are individuals who spent intense time in Jesus' presence, some of his closest earthly followers. And we know the purpose of the trip, why Jesus and these three men are, are going up on the mountain. It's prayer. They're going to pray. And here again, as we've seen so often in Luke, as Jesus reveals himself in a, in a certain particular sort of way, as, as he brings more of himself into the view of his disciples, he does that in the midst of deep prayer. Prayer. For example, Jesus was praying at the time of his baptism when the voice of the Father said, this is my beloved Son. Jesus was in deep prayer at the time when ultimately he then turns to his disciples and and asks them who others say that he is. And ultimately Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now as Jesus goes into this deep moment of prayer here on the mountain, we find that once again, as Jesus prays God the Father responds and it's so evident in the way that God the Father responds that Jesus's prayer is that his disciples would know him more fully because as Jesus is praying this is the very thing that happens this is the answer of the Father in heaven to the Son who prays and my friends you should know That Jesus' prayer for his disciples is that they would discover more about him. And his prayer in this space, his desire in this space has not changed, my friends. His prayer is for lost and redeemable people to come to know him. He is not intent on hiding himself from you. If you seek him, you will find him. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks for them, the door will be open. And I don't care who you are, what you've done, this grace that Christ has, that you would come to know him, is in abundant display for you. His longing is for you. And Jesus' prayer is answered. And a greater revelation of who he is is granted to his disciples. And they find that his appearance is not as it seems. Jesus looks like an ordinary man. That's the only way they've ever known him to be. Until now. And then he undergoes a sudden change. And Luke here in Luke chapter 9 discusses that Jesus' face became different. But Matthew and Mark both mention that he was transfigured that Greek word transfigured is a word which means to change from within, from one form to another. The, the word in the Greek is metamorpho, which you might guess the English word we get from that, which is the Greek word, I mean the English word, metamorphosis. Uh, that's the word we use to describe how this ugly little slinky worm of a thing climbs into a cocoon and then transforms from the inside out into a gorgeous butterfly. That's a transformation from within. And in this transformation, something wonderful was on display. Matthew records Jesus' face shone like the sun in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. And here in Luke, we see at the end of verse 29 that Jesus' clothing became white and gleaming. Matthew furthermore records that his clothes became white as light. Mark's gospel, I really got to say, sounds like a laundry detergent commercial to me. Because listen to what Mark says. He says, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I mean, can you see Tide taking that one up or or Gain or whoever, right? But I'll tell you this, ain't no laundry detergent gonna do what Christ's glory does. Because in this moment, he was brilliantly glorious. This was not a glory that washes away stains from the outside. This was a glory that emitted from the inside. And here, just for a moment, Jesus let forth a sign of his purity and his brilliance. And on this moment, there was a, on display in this moment, holiness without any stain. And later in verse 32, we see a summary of what was different about Jesus The disciples, once they woke up, saw Jesus' glory. Glory. That's a word we tend to use a lot, but we don't tend to think much about what the word means. But the word that's translated glory here is from the Greek word doxa. It's the word that we derive our English word doxology from. It's a word that in its simplest usage means to think. And it means to give a proper opinion or estimate of something. The, the word was often used as a term of measurement to ascribe how much worth something had. And so when you think of the word glory, think of the weight of what something is. God's glory has to do with all that he is in his nature and all that he has done through his works. He is by nature glorious. That's the weight of who he is. And he is glorified then When we simply see him for who he truly is and ascribe to him the value that he truly possesses. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about Christ's glory. The the weight of who he is. And here Jesus shines forth with a glory that shows that he is God in the flesh. Have have you ever been staring at a cloud when all of a sudden the sun peeks through? We've all had that experience at some point or another, right? You shield your eyes because it's more than you were prepared for. It's more than you expected. Well, here in the transfiguration, the glory of Christ all at once began to burst forth like the sun coming from behind a cloud. But this glory, my friends, was not new to Jesus. He wasn't taking glory on in this moment. In John chapter 17, verse 5, we find that he shared this glory with the heavenly Father before the world began. But individuals had not seen that glory on display coming out of him. He looked just like another man. And yet Jesus' transfiguration shows us that, that though his outward appearance was that of a mere mortal man, he in his nature and in his essence is God, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, who took on flesh, merged with humanity. And when it comes to Jesus' deity, my friends, God's word is so consistently clear on this very thing that's why we read in john chapter 1 verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory is the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth and then in colossians chapter 2 verse 9 for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form Again, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not recall, regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. You see, when Jesus took on flesh to become the savior of the world, he emptied himself he veiled his glory but in the transfiguration for a brief moment the veil of Jesus's humanity was lifted and the true essence of his deity was allowed to shine through this glory which he had always possessed rose to the surface for this brief moment and in this moment the disciples saw both a reminder of his pre-human glory and a preview of his future coming glory. Surely the disciples had wondered in the past if Jesus might have indeed been God in the flesh. But now this reality was unmistakable. Surely with the things that they had seen him do to this point, they must have speculated that he might be God. I mean, they heard and saw him doing things that only God could do. They heard him pronouncing the forgiveness of sins upon others. They heard him command the wind and the waves and saw them To go still. They saw him raise others from the dead. They saw him driving out demons and healing those with leprosy. They saw him walking on water and commanding bread out of loaves to feed the multitudes. Surely they must have speculated how he could indeed be God in the flesh. But now this speculation was over. Now they saw glory emanating from his very person. And friends, I just want to ask you, do you know that Jesus is glorious? How will you know that you know? Well, if you know that Jesus is glorious, then you will respect him. You will live your life in awe of him. Because he is so much greater than what this world portrays him to be. He is glorious and he is unique. Though he may be the firstborn among many brothers, as Romans 8.29 says, no other man can compare with Jesus when it comes to his status as the Son of God, the Son of David, and the conqueror of death. And Jesus may look like just another man, but he is glorious God. That's the first way Jesus is more than what meets the eye. Here's the second. Jesus may look like just another prophet, but he is the one Savior. In verse 30, two new characters appear on the scene. As Jesus is transfigured and his glory shines forth, two men appear and they are talking with him as his glory shines forth. They are Moses and Elijah. And verse 31 mentions that they appear in glory. Not that they themselves are producing glory, but they are basking in the glory of Christ in this moment. And the Old Testament is filled with heroes of the faith. But for the Jews, I mean, this was the elite of religious heroes this was the elite of god's people moses and elijah were the, among the greatest heroes of the old testament faith moses was god's instrument of deliverance from egypt and moses was god's instrument of revelation of the law as god relayed the law his very commands through moses to his people and then you've got elijah who was this great miracle worker These were renowned prophets. Yet in the presence of Jesus, they don't tout their own deeds. They don't speak about their own accomplishments. They speak about what Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And really, Luke's gospel is the only one out of the three synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that talks about the the topic of the conversation that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are carrying on. It happens there in verse 31, where Luke records they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, here's an interesting tidbit. That word that's translated departure here in our English translations is actually the Greek word exodus, okay? The Greek word exodus. I mean, you've got Moses, who is the one who led God's people Out of Egypt in what we know as the Exodus. And as he comes here and appears in Jesus' presence, he's speaking of an Exodus. But it is not the one that we tend to know about. He's speaking about the Exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish. When he appears, he speaks of a much greater Exodus. He speaks of the deliverance that Jesus is about to bring in Jerusalem through his own death. Jesus is about to die for the sins of the world. He's about to set the captives of sin free. And throughout Luke, we've seen individuals speculating who Jesus is. And so often, the speculation is that Jesus is another prophet of God. And yet, here in the presence of two of God's greatest prophets, we find that Jesus is all the rage. Because Jesus is not just another great, great teacher. Jesus is, is not just another great miracle worker. Jesus is the one who all of the teachings and all of the miracles of God point to. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. He was about to accomplish what it was all about. In fact, when the people of Jesus' day thought of Moses, they thought of God's law. When they thought of Elijah, they thought of God's prophets. And it's so clear here that the entirety of God's revelation to this point, the entire Old Testament, which consists of the law and the prophets, bears witness to Jesus as the Lord and Christ and Savior. He is the crescendo, my friends, of God's redemptive work. And here Jesus is gathered with the heroes, heroes of the Jewish faith. These are the heroes of God's work. And what we need to know is we kind of evaluate what they're doing in this moment, my friends, is that the true heroes of the faith are those who testify about Jesus. Moses had died 1,500 years before this event. Elijah had gone on to heaven 800 years before. Both of them suffered persecution in their time here on earth. They both endured great, tes- great hardships as they lived their lives of testimony to the work of Almighty God. Work that ultimately culminated in this one. But you know, I've got to wonder, what, what would Moses and Elijah say if we ask them now about the hardships that they faced here on earth? I mean, what, what would they say in the light of that, that the fact that they've been with Jesus now hundreds of years? What would they say about the afflictions that they faced, the persecutions that they faced, the disobedience of the people of God, those who tried to persecute? Them, the, the wicked kings, what would they say in light of what they have experienced with him for now hundreds of years? And I've got to tell you, my friends, that I think they would say, that was nothing compared to what he has granted me now. That that was nothing compared to the riches that I now find, find in his presence. Any suffering that I encountered in my earthly life, was well worth the reward of being with Him forever. And so I urge you, my friends, trust in Him, for only He is Savior. Others may have done great works for God, but the best of those works was only a testimony that He was coming to do a greater work. And that's the work that He undertook in Jerusalem. Jesus was about to die to save the world and his death would bear the curse of every sin. He died once the just for the unjust. And so I say, have you entrusted your life to him? Have you seen to it that that his covering of sins has been for you? Have, have you said, I want that gift. I, I want to receive that gracious provision of God. And so I'm going to entrust myself in him. I'm going to Be covered by Jesus in his righteousness such that God sees me with that same righteousness. Because the just one has died in my place. That's what God would call us to do in light of what Christ has done in this unique work as the one Savior. And Jesus may look like another prophet, but he is the one Savior. That's the second way Jesus is more than what meets the eye. Here's the third. Jesus may look like just another respectable teacher, but he is the supreme source of divine truth. Verse 32 reveals that Peter and his companions were overcome with sleep. They were literally weighed down with sleep, the original Greek text says. And only Luke describes this sleep. Apparently, while Jesus was carrying on an intense prayer, the disciples took advantage of that opportunity to rest their weary bodies. Which we can understand. And some scholars even would propose that the transfiguration might have happened at night, but we don't know that with, with surety. But as the disciples became fully awake, in this moment, they see Christ's glory. They see Moses and they see Elijah. And when they see these three in this state, they are terrified. But but Peter is not the sort of guy who's going to stay quiet when he's terrified. No, Peter's the sort of guy who would say something when he didn't know what to say. And some of you know people like that. And some of you are people like that. And Luke records that Peter didn't even realize what he was saying at the end of verse 33. Mark's gospel reveals that Peter didn't know what to say because he was overcome with fear, in fact. But still, Peter felt like he had to say something. And say something he did. And when Peter addresses Jesus, he calls him master, which is a word that simply indicates that he sees Jesus as one who stands over him. Mark's gospel indicates that Peter further addresses Jesus as rabbi or teacher in this moment. Those are good things. But they don't indicate that Peter knew that Jesus stood above Moses and Elijah in his redemptive plans. No, what Peter proposes actually shows that he thinks of them as the opposite of that. Peter mistakenly proposes building three booths, or three tents, or three tabernacles, that word could be translated. And, And what he proposes is giving equal status to Jesus and to Moses and to Elijah. He essentially ranks these three individuals equally, which would have been a pretty common sort of thing for the Jews to do in their day, by the way, because they saw, again, these were heroes of their faith. But Peter was wrong. There's no need for three booths. Because only one of these voices really matters. Because Jesus is not just another voice among the many great religious teachers that God has paraded out. He wasn't just a lowly, meek and mild Galilean teacher. He wasn't just a teacher of how we ought to love one another. Though much of our world would like to diminish him to just that. He is not an equal with Moses. He is not an equal with Muhammad. He is not an equal with Joseph Smith. He stands supremely glorious above them all. And it may be true that all religions contain contain some truth. You may be able to find something true and something good in all the religions of the world. Something that helps you to live a more moral life or discover a purpose of why you're here. But don't for that reason get the idea that all religions lead to God. All religions do not lead to God. Only Jesus leads to God. Because almost all of what we call religion calls for us to do is is something that we might work out on our own in order to earn a right standing before God. Jesus, on the other hand, does not call for us to work out that which we can earn on our own. Jesus stands in the gap and does for us what we cannot do in our own strength. He bears the penalty of our sins as the sinless one who is acceptable before his heavenly Father. And he extends his righteousness then to us. It is not religious deeds but a personal relationship with the Savior that makes all the difference for the Christian. But we can't fault Peter for wanting to prolong this situation. I mean, Peter knows that it's good to be here in Christ's glory. In fact, he says that much. And when Peter basks in Jesus' glory, he doesn't want it to end. And neither shall we, I suppose. When we behold Jesus in his glorious return, surely we will not want that glory to end. And thanks be to God, my friends, it never shall end. But it won't happen according to Peter's plans. We won't build booths for Jesus. No, rather Jesus has gone to build a dwelling place for us. He has gone to prepare the way. And so I say, friends, worship him for he is worthy. He is supreme and he deserves our devotion and our honor and our praise and our worship. And Jesus may look like just another respectable teacher, but he is the supreme source of divine truth. And that's the third way Jesus is more than what meets the eye. Here's the fourth. Jesus may look like just another advice giver, but he is the beloved and chosen son of God. While Peter is still speaking of his insufficient plan for a heavenly camp out, verse 34 reveals that a cloud Formed and began to overshadow this unique assembly. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. The cloud that appears here in verse 34 reminds us of how God in the Exodus went before his people as a pillar of cloud by day to lead his people on the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they could travel by day and night. And here, the very presence of God the Father sweeps in as He speaks about His Son. And when He speaks, He informs His disciples out of the cloud that Jesus is His Son, His Chosen One. Now that phrase, Chosen One, further shows the uniqueness of Christ. The verb at the root of this word literally means to select out or to single out. Perhaps there were other ways in which God could have saved the world. I mean, I could only speculate. Perhaps there were other champions who have, could have led others to salvation. But this was the chosen one. This was the one that God had singled out. This is the only one that is endorsed by the Almighty. And Matthew records that after this voice, they fell face down on the ground and they were terrified. After that, Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. Then when they lifted up their eyes, they saw only Jesus. But in between all of that was just a single command of God the Father. He didn't just identify Jesus as his son, as the chosen one. He gave a command in light of the fact that Jesus was his son and the chosen one. And the command that God the Father gives is simply, Listen to him he calls for us to listen to jesus jesus didn't come to give us opinions he didn't come to give us options he came to give us truth that is worthy of our obedience and in light of how much greater jesus is than we tend to imagine the responsibility from the heavenly father is clear listen to him the verb behind our english translation listen is given as a present imperative in the greek language that has the idea of a continual act this was not a command to listen to jesus at this one moment for this one brief bit of time this is a command to keep on listening to jesus this is a command to make it a habit of listening to jesus and so i ask you my friends do you have a habit of listening to jesus are you daily in his word The law and the prophets, they all point to him. Do you have the habit of reading God's word and listening to Jesus? As wonderful as these experiences must have been for Peter and for James and for John, this experience, this mountaintop experience of glorious revelation would not last for their earthly lifetime. Because experiences come and go, do they not? But the word of God remains. Our experiences will fade, but God's word never changes. I'm not going to live my life on the excitement of an experience that I had sometime in the past. I'm going to live my life on the steadfast hope of God's word. And when we catch a glimpse of who he really is, we see the world differently. We will have a different value system. Because when we see Jesus as the glorious king, we know that he is worthy of our obedience to the word he commands. For the one who beholds Jesus as glorious, we desire to perform as an act of our own obedience the word which he commands. Our whole value system changes. We're dead to ourselves We refuse to cheapen the gift of sex, for example, by parading it out to those with whom we are not in a covenant relationship. We honor all life as valuable and as worthy of protection from the womb to the grave. We stand against all forms of social injustice that seek to run over those for whom Christ died. And we say, my primary allegiance is not to a political party or a country or a race or a region. My primary allegiance is to Christ and I'll listen to him. Jesus may look like just another advice giver, but he is the beloved and chosen son of God. That is the fourth way. Jesus is more than what meets the eye. Here's the final one. Jesus may look like just another mortal, but he is victorious. Over the grave, In the wake of this event, the disciples are silent. That's what Luke records in verse 36. But that's not the whole story, because both Matthew and Mark record that Jesus commanded his disciples not to tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And yes, they were silent for now, but that was not their ultimate state. Because after the resurrection we find that these same disciples became very vocal. After the resurrection, they told everyone what they had seen. After the resurrection, they were equipped and prepared to speak of the kingdom that they had seen with their own eyes. But first, they needed to learn that Jesus' death was not as it seemed. Sure, he looked like just another mortal, but they saw him raised from the dead. They saw him conquering the body's greatest foe. And when they saw this, they gave their lives to proclaiming to others who he is and what he has done. And my friends, you should know this. Jesus does not save us for silence. Tell of him. Make his wonderful works known and rejoice in the victory that he has won. Because Jesus has risen from the grave and his resurrection gives us hope. Look, Peter, James, and John didn't live the, live the rest of their lives here on this mountain. They didn't live the place where his glory had been revealed. No, they came down and they were persecuted and they faced trials and they faced tribulations greater than we could imagine. But this event gave them hope because they'd seen a glimpse of Of his glory. And my friends we don't live in the same place. Where we may have been when we first come to realize that Jesus is in fact glorious. You may not be there now. But if we have come to know that he is glorious. Then even when we are down in the valley. We can thrive in the valley. Because we know the glory of the one who we belong to. At the end of World War II a man named Murdo McDonald spoke to his american colleagues who were on the other side of a fence in a prison camp a concentration camp in germany they were prisoners but macdonald shared with them the news that the war was over germany had been defeated the allies had won and yet still for 3 days these americans remained prisoners for the germans had not yet learned of their own defeat And so for three days, these Americans continued to live with the hardships of being prisoners of war. The war was over, but they still experienced the conditions of war. But the news of victory spread throughout that concentration camp. And as it did, the attitude of those prisoners was changed. Because suddenly, they had hope. The enemy had been defeated. Their victory was assured. Though they might have been ready to give up before, now they could endure the trials of this concentration camp because they knew that they were on the winning side. And the transfiguration, my friends, was a glimpse of Christ's glory. This was a preview of his kingdom, which is surely coming. And here we see so clearly that Jesus is more than what meets the eye. In this event, we hear the good news that Jesus is the glorious and victorious Lord who is coming again in great power and glory. And He has won the victory. Our struggles here and now are only a vestige of a war that has already been won. So live with hope, dear ones. Jesus is coming again to release us from this prison. He already has the keys to open that door. And so no struggle you can face now will be able to hold you back. His victory over this war-torn world has been secured. He has triumphed over the grave. And His glory will shine into every crevice of this dark place, making it new. So live with hope. Live with joy. Live with anticipation because Jesus is coming again. And lift up your faces, lift up your attitudes, get ready for Him for He is coming again and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen. My friends, do you see that He's so much greater than our world would give Him credit for being? Do you see that He's so much more glorious than anything you might find in the publications that are so prominent in our day, in the news feeds, in in the scholarly systems, so many of our universities. Jesus is just proclaimed as as another guy who stepped in and maybe had some good teachings, but who was not the glorious Son of God resurrected from the dead. Do you see how that makes all the difference? Do you see how that provides for us the promise that this prison shall be evacuated? And so, my friends, we live with hope. And I hope that's a hope that is steadfast and sure in your heart and in your life. I hope that you've entrusted yourself to the one who can conquer the grave I hope that your steadfast hope is that Jesus who revealed himself for just a moment to be glorious is coming again on the clouds to be the glorious king. And he shall reign forever and ever. I hope that's the testimony of your life. But if it's not, my friends, as I've described already, his grace is so richly available. His work and his yearning are for you. And so he simply invites you to come. He simply invites you to entrust your life to Him. He simply calls for you to turn away from pursuing this life of, of success, this life of pursuing your own passions, your own pursuits, and, and just, just just yield yourself to Him and all that He's granted to you. And His grace does all the work. His grace does all the heavy lifting. His death on the cross bears the penalty of our sins and His resurrection from the grave gives the hope that we too shall be released from this prison. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good news that Jesus is so much more glorious than we could even imagine. And yet he does not hold this glory to himself. He in fact veiled that glory which we could not behold in our sinful state and took on human flesh so that He could come and dwell among us. He was veiled with a purpose. Father, I thank You that You veiled Your Son so that He might reveal to us Your yearning for us. That the one who was veiled is the one who was crucified. And the one who was crucified is the one who has covered our sins. And the one who has covered our sins is not done with us yet, but calls us to. Life, cause us to eternity in his glorious presence. So Father, we praise you for your grand rescue plan over all of mankind. And Father, as we acknowledge that you are indeed a glorious God who has sent your glorious son to be revealed to us, that you call us with a purpose, you call us to listen to him. So Father, I pray on this day, That every heart would hear this call. Every heart would hear this cry that Jesus is glorious. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the unique Savior. And that we would all, Lord, seek to listen to him. Maybe for some that's a matter of listening and coming by faith for the first time. And trusting life to him. Maybe for others it's a matter of saying, you know, I've gotten out of my groove. I've started pursuing my own path again. And I just need to follow Jesus again. I just need to listen to him maybe for others it's like, man I need to bind together with a body that could help and encourage and strengthen me and rally around me and I, I, just, want to, I just want people to know that I want to be a part of this body Whether whatever the need may be I just pray that in these final moments as we sing that you through the power of your spirit would bring conviction where conviction is to you and you would give us courage to respond to our glorious savior it's in his worthy name we pray amen